Tom and Carol. Uh, friends, let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open, but flick back to the first passage. I think it was on page 821 if you're using one of our church Bibles or uh, whatever page it is in your own Bible. Uh, flick back there. That's where we'll be spending most of our time this morning. Let me add my welcome to uh, Rogers. It is uh, great to be here with all of you this morning, and particularly if you're visiting with us this morning or you've been here for a short period of time, it is great to see you here. We'd love to get to know you better. Uh, please stick around if you can for lunch afterwards so, so that we can do that. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to have a think about this particular idea of forgiveness and uh, this passage that we're looking at in the gospel this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word and the fact that uh, through your word we can know you. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to understand this incredibly important subject of forgiveness. Help us to recognise what a blessing it is to be those who have had our sins forgiven. So encourage us this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I, say, I used to go to church with uh, a lady that is about to come on your screen there, this lady here. Uh, her name is Kathy Diosi. Uh, we used to go to church together. She had every right, can I say, uh, to be living her life with resentment and bitterness. She doesn't look like that, does she? She was one of the most joyful, loving and kind women that I have ever known. But can I say, Kathy upset uh, a lot of people at one point when her biography came out. Uh, when it came out, quite a few uh, in the Jewish community were very angry with Kathy because her biography came out with the title Forgiving Hitler. Uh, it tells the story of her escape from the Nazis and her family's suffering and murders at the hands of Hitler's men. And in the foreword to the book, it actually acknowledges that Forgiving Hitler is about as an obscene title that you could give or could imagine being given to this particular book. Now, if you ask uh, Kathy how on earth she was able to forgive Hitler, all he had done to her family and to her people, then she would say because she had come to understand just how much she had been forgiven by God. And being forgiven, being loved, being accepted by God had transformed her life. Kathy was an absolute delight. You know, the parable of Jesus that we've just read from Luke chapter 15 actually caused a similar kind of stir in his day. Uh, it's a very famous parable called the parable of the prodigal son, uh, although Jesus doesn't call it that. Uh, you know, the Bible, uh, those who translate the Bible put those headings in there. And it's not really a story about one son, but about two sons. And it's not just about the two sons, because in the end, it's also a story about the father of these two sons. Now, you might call it, for example, the parable of the unrighteous son, the self-righteous son with the one loving father, but I'm guessing that was too long. Anyway, but Jesus' parable was not meant to be, uh, as you read it and you've just read it, it, it wasn't meant to be a sentimental story about a wayward child and a loving father who's just kind of pleased to have his kid back home okay. This wasn't a parable that Jesus told to warm our hearts. This is a parable that would explode, if you like, every human category about what it means to approach God. Uh, the original hearers would not have heard this parable in a sentimental way. Uh, this is a story that creates a stir um, amongst its original hearers, and it, it should for us as well. And the beginning of, of chapter 15 there in the Bible, in Luke's Gospel, uh, 
tells us who these original hearers are. Let me just remind you, in chapter 15, verse 1, we didn't read it then, uh, although Carol did uh, point it out to us. Uh, we read there in verse 1 of chapter 15, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so notice here that Jesus has a dual audience. Uh, the tax collectors and other sinners are one group that has been drawn to Jesus to listen to his teaching and even to eat with him. The other is the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard Archie explain that these guys are the good guys. Uh, they're the morally outstanding citizens of their day. And so they're unhappy that Jesus would welcome these sinners. And so because of their attitude, uh, because of their attitude towards these sinners, Jesus actually goes on to tell three parables, three stories about the lost being found. Now, the first, we didn't read it, the first is about a lost sheep. Uh, the second uh, is about a lost coin. And then the rejoicing that takes place when each is found. And, and then the third parable we're looking at is the one that we're looking at today. At first, it appears to be about a lost son. But it ends up being about two sons and two ways to be lost and to be cut off from God. And so this, this is actually a parable aimed directly at Jesus' audience. Uh, the young son, the, the prodigal, equates with the tax collectors and the sinners, uh, while the older son, if you like, equates with the Pharisees and the scribes. And then the father's attitude towards his sons actually expresses the heart of God towards the lost. Uh, let's just pick it up again down in verse 11, if you've got your Bibles there, verse 11 of chapter 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said, said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This isn't a happy story, is it? Uh, the father appears to be a, a relatively wealthy, honourable man uh, who is faced with the dilemma of a wayward son. Uh, the younger son is boldly and brazenly wicked in his request for his inheritance before his father's death, which only proves his unworthiness to receive it. But his father grants his request, he divides the inheritance and gives it to his younger son. It pictures, if you like, God letting a sinner go his own way. And the son's foolish intentions are quickly seen. That is, he's got what he wants and he's out of there, free from the constraints of his home, to live as he pleases. But his newfound wealth and freedom don't bring wisdom, do they? He squanders it recklessly until he ends up reaping what he has sown. He's destitute, a sinful and a broken man. Uh, the fact that he ends up feeding pigs and longing to eat even what they were eating is supposed to highlight the, the devastation his sin has caused him. 
I mean, pigs are unclean animals for the Jews. To be serving the pigs just kind of emphasised just how bad things were. I mean, running away from God kind of starts by feeling free and it ends in utter misery, either in this life or the one to come or in both. You know, one way a person becomes lost and alienated from God is deliberately. That is to simply just kind of run away from God, go in the opposite direction, to turn your back on him, to not want to be constrained by him in any way, to be free to run your own life your way. But you see, to to deliberately cut yourself off from the source of life isn't freedom, it's devastation. It's like jumping out of a plane without a parachute. It might have a sense of freedom at first, but it's not going to end well, is it? In the case of the prodigal son, he, he didn't want the constraints and attachments to his father and to his father's home. He ran from them. But did you notice the irony here? Uh, he runs from the attachments of a, a loving home and a loving father, and he winds up attaching himself to a foreigner who sends him to feed his pigs and cares nothing for him. Now, when we, we break our attachment with God, then we simply wind up attached to someone or something else. And that attachment will be slavery, not sonship, not freedom. See, running from God doesn't lead to freedom and happiness. It inevitably winds up in misery. But how often do we see that it's in a person's misery that the grace of God, the kindness of God, can do its work? You know, rarely does a person turn back to God when they think that they're getting what they want. The prodigal son, for example, didn't think about home while he still had wealth to squander. It's not until his life has fallen apart and he comes to his senses or he comes to himself, as uh, verse 17 says, and in his misery and in his utter hopelessness, he finally recognises the obvious. See there in verse 17? I mean, even his father's servants are better off than him. I mean, they have food. He doesn't. And there's a second thing that he realises that's even more important. Look there at verse 18. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, here's what it really means for him to come to himself in verse 17. He doesn't just realise that he's going to be better off back at home. He realises that he has sinned, that he's run away from his father, that his lostness is his own doing. The lostness is not something we can make excuses for. We're guilty. We've turned our back on our heavenly father's will and we've rejected it. We rejected him. We rejected his ways. And so coming to yourself is realising how horribly offensive this is to God and that we have no rights before him at all. I mean, the Bible makes it very clear that everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's will for us. We have rebelled against him. And there are times when we feel the depths of our guilt and our shame. Our greatest and our most urgent need is for forgiveness and acceptance. We need to keep remembering that God's kingdom is a kingdom of forgiveness 
not merit, not what I do to earn something. Some people make the mistake of thinking that we need to clean up our lives, make ourselves acceptable before we can come to Jesus and be accepted by him. But you see, that's wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. We come to Jesus just as we are, in our sin and guilt and bitterness and pain. We acknowledge that we have sinned against him and, and are unworthy of his love and his mercy. And he forgives and accepts us just as we are. Although, like my friend Kathy, when God accepts us as we are, when he forgives us for all that we've done, we never remain as we are. God's forgiveness transforms us to be like Jesus. And so Jesus pictures the son doing what everyone who wants to come home to God must do. Humbly throw ourselves on God's free and merciful and amazing grace. And so the son, he heads home uh, and look at the incredible reception he receives there in verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That is, his father throws off all decorum, all cultural norms out the window because of his utter joy at seeing his lost son returning. See, that's the way God is about your coming home, about my coming home. See verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And look at the response of the father down in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You know, perhaps there's someone in your life who you want to come home to come home from sin or unbelief or hard-heartedness hard or lostness. Imagine being able to see the brokenness in their face and being able to reach out to them and embrace them. You need to know that that's the way God is about you. Here's that deep, deep love of God, so amazingly and even scandalously expressed. This is not a child who deserves the forgiveness and love of his father. Just as we might be convinced that Hitler could never deserve the love of God. The truth is none of us deserve God's love. We have no basis to demand he'd love and forgive and accept us. And yet the words of the song, I think, put it best. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You know, the words of that song pick up the only way home to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, God's true Son. And it's often been suggested that the, the parable of the prodigal son could write, just as rightly be called the prodigal God. Uh, that's because the word prodigal just simply means recklessly extravagant, spending to the point of poverty. Uh, but it doesn't have to have a negative meaning. It can also be positive. And so the prodigal son, if you like, captures the negative meaning well, wasteful and irresponsible. That's exactly, if you like, what the, the Pharisees, what the religious leaders were criticising Jesus for when he was receiving and eating with tax collectors and sinners. 
They thought that he was being far too free and reckless with the love and favour that he was showing and promising them from God. But you see, the positive meaning is to be lavishly and sacrificially abundant in giving. And Jesus, notice, went well beyond that. And the Bible tells us that he gave up the riches of heaven to appear in human flesh so as to die our death for our sin as our punishment, to take it on himself on the cross. He became extravagantly poor so that we might enjoy the riches of heaven at home with our heavenly father. And so the vast depths of God's love are seen in God giving his only son, Jesus, to make a wretch you and me, his treasure. See, there's only one way home to the Father. There's only one way we can be forgiven. And that's through his true son, the Lord Jesus. But there is another son, notice, in the story and another way to be lost uh, and alienated from God. Have a look there down at verse 25 in chapter 15. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older son is not happy. Uh, he's never treated his dad in such a wicked and humiliating fashion. In fact, quite the opposite. He's always towed the line. Uh, he's contributed. He's not caused problems. He, what does he get? Well, not even a goat to party with his friends. How could dad ever take his young brother back? He'd prefer his brother actually got what he deserved. The older brother here makes a serious complaint. I'm worthy, you're ungrateful, and this is unfair. And the older brother is offended by the father's extravagant and, to him, irresponsible welcome of his younger brother, just as the Pharisees were offended by Jesus welcoming sinners. Now, perhaps we can even sympathise with the older brother's concerns. It doesn't seem fair, does it? But actually to do that is to align ourselves with the Pharisees and actually share their misunderstanding and lose out on the depth of love that God offers all of us. Our world operates on performance-based love. It's one of the reasons why so many marriages fail. But love like God's is not a love that is deserved. No one on earth actually deserves God's love. No one actually deserves God's forgiveness. But everyone has been offered it. The older brother's problem is his self-righteous, self-directed focus. There's no joy that his brother has come home. He's too self-consumed with issues of justice and equity to be caught up in the joy. He's never left home. But he's also never shared 
his father's heart. And so Jesus' parable ends with the older brother also needing to make a decision. He too needs to come home. This is one of those, one of the most powerful parables for understanding Christianity, I think. The love of God for a lost and broken and sinful world. God searching for us and longing for us to come home and experience his forgiveness. To come home and experience his grace and mercy and acceptance. It reminded me once again that if Christianity is for real, then we need to be Christians who are for real. That is, we must care and be real about our relationship with God. We must care and be real about our relationship with each other. And we must care and we must be real about our relationship with the lost in this world. If we claim to love and serve a God who is completely committed to us and has so lovingly embraced us, then we can do nothing less than that. Christianity is is simply a bunch of people who know that they have been forgiven for everything that they have ever done wrong and that they are loved in the most significant way by Jesus. And so therefore they are compelled by that love to live every moment and in every matter of their lives for the sake of Jesus. And so as we start 2024, here's three things that you should give serious consideration to. First, you need to get real with God. Are you willing to admit that you need forgiveness? And perhaps you've been running away from him and you need to come home. God has come in the person of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. He rejoices to bring us into his family and he celebrates when we turn to him. Life in this world is so short. It's actually a dangerous thing to hear God calling you home and to turn your back on him. Do you need to get real with God by coming home to him today? Now, perhaps you've never left the building, but your heart's never truly been there either. You think God should and probably does love you. After all, you haven't run away. But perhaps you've never been truly transformed by that gracious, undeserved, extravagant love that should control your whole life. Do you want forgiveness? Then you need to meet Jesus. But if you're someone who has already been forgiven and you you know the joy of God's love for you, then secondly, you need to get real with each other. Uh, If we're going to be Christians who are for real, then we're going to need each other's help. I need you and you need me if we're going to keep growing in our knowledge and our love of the God who gave himself for us and if we're going to continue to serve him and his kingdom. God has made us members of his family and so we need to take our place and play our part in God's family, the church. And then finally, you need to get real with the world. Why are sinners like the type described in this passage not as attracted to our churches as they were to Jesus? Is it because we're more like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus? Is there more older brother in us than we like to think? Perhaps that's one of the reasons why we don't see more younger brothers coming home to God. Perhaps they think they won't be as well embraced by us, sinners, 
by us as sinners were by Jesus. Perhaps they think they, that we don't care. Do we care that there are sinners all around us that are lost and cut off from God? Well, guess whose arms Jesus uses now to open up and embrace the lost and to welcome them in? It's ours, yours and mine. Who can you have over for dinner? Who can you give a Bible to? Who can you read a Bible with? Who can you offer to help in some practical way? Who can you offer a kind word to? Who can you smile at and say hello? Who can you invite to church or to maybe come along to our life course where they can discover who Jesus is and what he's done for them? Who needs you to love and accept them like Jesus did? Who needs to be loved like Jesus loved the tax collectors and sinners of his day? Because they are all around us. Will you love them the way Jesus does? Now that you know his forgiveness. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God, you are merciful and extremely loving. The extravagance of your grace towards us in sending Jesus to die on the cross for us, that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be welcomed into your family, is something that is hard for us to wrap our heads around. But you are a God who loves us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to keep seeing that more and more. For those of us, Father, who are turning our backs on you or wandering away for whatever reason, help us to see what a mistake that is and to come back to you to know your love and your forgiveness. For those of us who know the great joy of being forgiven, help us to love like you love. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.